This is Only the Strong Survive, a podcast powered by Con Media, where we dive deep into the world of business, leadership, and innovation. I'm your host, Dan Kahn, and I'm honored to have you join us today. So let's get ready to learn some survival skills together. Welcome to Only the Strong Survive, and I'm excited to have a great guest on the show today. In an era where convenience meets customization, businesses are rewriting the rules of engagement with the consumer. Today, I have the honor of hosting Ted Wentz III. Ted is the CEO of Quadratech which is the leading family-run Jeep accessories retailer. They have a focus on direct mail and e-commerce sales channels. And in today's conversations, we're going to dive into alternatives to traditional retail and wholesale business models, the future of what direct-to-consumer sales looks like. We're going to talk about different strategies that connect brands directly with their audience. And we're just going to also talk about sort of the state of the automotive aftermarket as well. Welcome to the show, Ted, and I'm happy to have you on. Thanks, Dan. It's great to be here. When we started talking about distribution and how that would be kind of an interesting topic for for an episode of this show. I read a book a while ago and I reread it every once in a while called Zero to One. It's about startups and things like that. And there's a quote in it that I thought was interesting that says, superior sales and distribution by itself can create a monopoly, even with no product differentiation. The converse is not true. I think that's an interesting quote because it talks about like, you know, especially with commodity products, if you make it easier or a better experience for a consumer, they're going to reward that experience with repeat business. And I don't know how or if that applies to our industry. So can you give us a little background on your firm, on on Quadratech, on your business, and tell us a little bit about what you guys do and and how you do it? You bet. So so Quadratech has been many things over the years. So today we are predominantly an e-com company servicing the the Jeep parts and accessories market. But over the years, we've been uh, everything from a direct mail company, you know, those old paper catalogs that come to your mailbox. We've been an event marketing company, an event activation company. We've been in more channels than Jeep. We've been uh, what we would call a wholesale distributor, and we still do some of that today. We've been involved in online marketplaces like Amazon and eBay. So we've been in in a lot of channels surrounding the automotive aftermarket, predominantly Jeep and off-road. The big bucket we have not played in is brick and mortar, brick and mortar retail. And that was on purpose for a long time. It's interesting because we've served all the pieces around that, but that's the one spot we haven't been. You mentioned we're one of the bigger players in that space and that that's true. And you know, we're a family business. So that that also has an interesting color on everything. Let's talk about the history of Quadratech for a second, because I think it is a cool story. So how did the business start? So my, my dad started the business in 8990. He was a a retired formula car driver. He's American, but he was a driver in Europe, came back to the States and was involved in some, I guess you could call it retail wholesale for formula car parts. And he was uh, working for this company, a bunch of British guys that had come over. And he thought, you know, I'm pretty good at this. I understand the marketing aspect of it. I understand the distribution side of it. I understand how to, to make that customer feel like they got what they wanted out of this. And so he started looking around for a different market to start his own thing. And, and he thought Jeep was a, was a cool brand. He was a Jeep guy. Jeep was very niche back then, very different than what it is today. And so he launched into that. Quickly thereafter, we also got into all the trucks, the big three trucks. We had direct mail catalogs for each of those under the Super Truck brand. And then we also did the Geo Trackers and Suzuki Samurais, which were kind of the uh, the competition to Jeep at the time. So we were a direct mail company for many, many, many years just doing that until the internet was born. And I remember discussions about, well, do we have a website? What's the point of the website? And 
those sorts of things. And, you know, eventually we, we dove into that and progressively got more and more and more into e-commerce until today. We still do direct mail, but I would say that today we are an e-com company that does direct mail, not the other way around. That's interesting. The Suzuki Samurai thing made me smile because I, I still know guys that like won't move on from that. Like they're yeah. still dedicated to the Samurais. There is still a weird little cult following on those things. There's places in the world where that's all they have. Yeah. You can go there and, you know, especially in the Caribbean, there's a couple islands where it's nothing but Samurais and you bounce around these Samurais all day. It's, it's, it's awesome. That's funny. That's very cool. So now let's talk about your background a little bit because you have a really interesting background too. And there's some startups and there's some government service in there. So can you tell us a little bit about your background before you took over as CEO of Quadratech? Sure. So I was one of those guys that said I didn't want to join the family business for all sorts of reasons. I thought I was going to be in, in government and in politics for my life. So I Went to school down south and moved to D.C. afterwards. And this was right around uh, 9-11. It was actually 9-11 happened. I moved to D.C. and they stood up this new department called the Department of Homeland Security. And they were looking for all sorts of folks to come on board and help get that off the ground. So I jumped on board and did that for, for a bunch of years, helped start some agencies. And it was a wild time, but really satisfying. And, and I was lucky in that I got a lot of leadership experience very quickly at a young age that you, you probably couldn't get today, just given that there was need. It was a disorganized need. And so got to, to do and see a lot of exciting things that I don't know that very many 22-year-olds get to do in, in 2023. So very fortunate for that. And then eventually decided I wanted to get into business and went back to school and thought I was going to do all sorts of different things things coming out of school and, and ultimately wound up starting my own business. Actually, I came to work for my family's business for about two years and I, I did a rotational program here. I think my folks thought that I would just stay and my intention was always to stay for a little bit and then go start my own business. So I did that also in the e-com space. Uh, that was an outdoor cooking equipment, barbecue, that sort of thing. And did that, I think, for about eight years. And that was a great experience. Uh, learned a lot from the business side especially since I had, you know, come out of business school with very little business experience and then ultimately made the leap to run my family's business. I guess that was about five years ago now. I remember those early days of, of Homeland and they were kind of building the plane while they were flying it, I guess. And that was kind of a crazy time because there was hurricanes and all sorts of stuff kind of all happening in a pretty short couple of year window there. What was that experience like and what lessons did you take away from it for running Quadratech in the future? You know, it's funny. I if, if I had the maturity I have now back then, I probably would have taken away a whole different kind of experience from that. But given how young I was, you know, a lot of what you're looking for at that point in life is to have fun. It was a serious job, but it was really satisfying and fun because we, we felt like we were doing important work. And I, you know, I look back on that. I think it was, I was fortunate enough to have all the security clearances and all that stuff went, went through all that. And so I got to see a lot of what the threat actually was back then. And it was, it was real. It was frightening. And, you know, I think I was there for three or four years, something like that. And by the end, we had made a real difference in terms of making this not only a safer country, but I think a, a safer world. And that excitement level was a little lower. I think that's a good thing. But I think from a leadership perspective, especially carrying into where I am today, is I learned a lot about having to convince those on your team to follow you. And that it turns out they don't just do that because 
you're in charge. Which I definitely went into that experience thinking that's how it worked. And, you know, being so young, nearly everybody that worked for me uh, was older, a lot of which were ex-military guys. And there, there was tons of Coast Guard guys and tons of Army guys and, then a, and a bunch of Air Force guys. Given the way they, they built DHS, they pulled people from all those places. And those guys had no intention of listening to anything I had to say. And it took a while to, to understand how to motivate them and get them to get on board to whatever I was trying to do, which maybe whatever I was trying to do was wrong. What they were trying to do was right. And being able to embrace that and carry that forward. So, you know, I came out of there and even for the role I'm in today, given the size of, of the company, I'm probably on the younger side for a job like this. But in reality, I, I've, I've been in leadership for so long now and learned so many of those things when I was young, making those big mistakes, that it's put me in a much, much better spot today in terms of being able to navigate those things. That's interesting. And, and I, I would assume being in a mission-driven environment would be kind of an interesting experience too, because everyone is not just punching a clock and working a line at a factory somewhere. I mean, you're literally trying to protect the country. So that, that would have, must have been an interesting experience. It was, and it's a big government agency agency bureaucracy, right? So there's there's all that aspect of it. And you have to figure out how to navigate that. And many of the things that people say about the government bureaucracy is very true. And some of them aren't. And so understanding, you know, how to navigate all that was interesting. I don't know how applicable that is to my, my current day situation, but I certainly learned a lot of patience and, you know, carrying in the whole aspect of that what we do today matters and is important. And we need to be on the balls of our feet all day long, right? That that we're, we're not going to wait for things to come to us and achieve that mission. And I, you know, I've tried to carry some of that into the business world and especially especially when it comes to our distribution, that's very operational in nature. So a lot of that applies. And, and you know, the, the adrenaline and how do you make good decisions when you have all that adrenaline going and there's a whole political side to that scene down there that I think is interesting. And there's parallels to that outside of, of the, the DC beltway that I think you can carry into to all sorts of different walks of life, but it's all lower volume than what you have down there. Well, we'll talk about this a little later, but I, I have to think that that experience of understanding how the government works also probably helps with some of your board endeavors. So we'll we'll talk about that a little <laughs> bit. You bet. Okay. So kind of going back to Quadratex, what I'd like to do now is is I want to talk because one of the things like you mentioned at the start here is that what's interesting about Quadratex is it appears that you guys have successfully navigated a couple of really interesting and, and sometimes tricky transitions. So a print-focused direct mail company pivoting into e-com pivoting into different marketplace and distribution channels like eBay and Amazon. Something I'd like to talk about in a little bit is, you know, you have your own kind of white label product line now where you guys don't just resell other brands' products, you're making your own products. And those are all challenging pivots. But before we get into any of that, can you explain how, and, and I don't know if this, and you might know this, I don't know if this is standard across a lot of industries or it's sort of unique to automotive aftermarket, but there, there has been sort of a pretty standard distribution model in the aftermarket for a long time. And it is certainly appears to be changing pretty radically right now. So can you walk everyone through sort of what that looked like for decades and decades and sort of what it's turning into? Absolutely. I mean, I think it's still evolving and I don't necessarily know where it's going to land. But for a long time, this industry is what was called two-stepped, meaning that manufacturers made the products and then they sold those to, to what we call wholesale distributors. And those distributors usually had large buildings 
buildings, right, warehouse buildings, oftentimes in multiple locations throughout the country. And so the products, they would get sold to them and there was a margin there. And then your your wholesale distributors would sell to retailers, installers, whoever else, right? And they would deliver the products to those stores. It was mostly brick and mortar back then. Brick and mortar stores that either were just a store or they had store and bays in the back where they would install all the product. And then that retailer was marking up the product they bought from the distributor and also putting labor on top of that. And that's how they made their money. That whole continuum worked that way for many, many, many years. You didn't really see manufacturers selling direct to consumers or even direct to the retailers. And you didn't see distributors, uh, you didn't see them, period, right? They were supposed to be in the background and you saw them at trade shows, but in terms of end consumers, they were invisible. They were serving a, a purpose that, that, that the two business partners on the other side couldn't do. So it worked that way forever. In large part, Quadratech, uh, among others, was a disruptor of that whole model. And we said, uh, and our competitors that were, were similar to us, said, no, 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 we're not going to buy from warehouse distributors. We're going to cut out the middleman. We'll be the retailer and we'll have scale. Since we're selling nationally direct mail, we will be able to push enough volume through the system as if we were a distributor and buy directly from the manufacturers. And so we would, you know, we would take that double margin. And there were four or five other players that did that and we competed against each other. And I think that changed the industry from lots of these little retailers that you could drive over and visit and they'd have a showroom and you you know you could buy your parts there. So I think that industry shrunk considerably and you had more of these catalog companies like JC Whitney at the time and Summit Racing and us and, and a few others sort of replacing that. But that brick and mortar business really became more and more and more focused on install. And you know I think that was that was their way of surviving and if if you didn't do that you probably weren't going to survive there and so that continuum lasted for a long time and the you know the warehouse distributors continued to service those installers which was probably a smaller business than they had before but the country was growing, right? And, and the market grew for the most part through that, call that a 30-year, 20-year period. And that stayed the same. And then the internet came out. And that, that sort of changed everything again, where those direct mail companies like us figured out e-commerce and how to do that. And it was really just direct mail on your computer. And for a long time, those websites were nothing more than order takers, right? We all still did our normal marketing and we saw more of the orders flow through. The brick and mortar world didn't really change that much. They Maybe they had websites at first and they sort of added them as you went along as a way to find them more than, than sell anything, right? Right, yep. And now we've gone through another iteration of change. You could say the last five years, but it probably started a little bit earlier than that, is manufacturers selling direct to consumer on their own websites, Right. So now you got the manufacturer selling to companies like me, selling to the to the warehouse distributors, and then selling also directly to the consumer. And so that's changed a lot. You know, now you have all these businesses that used to be partners exclusively, and now they have partnerships, but they're also competitors. And it muddies the water in terms of what's okay and what's not okay and where do we get along. And you have far more frenemies in our industry than you used to. It used to be you were a friend or an enemy, and now that's a much harder thing to define. And I think we're all adjusting to what does this world look like, right? When does a consumer want to go to a store versus come to a, it can buy everything from you place like Quadratech versus buy directly from the manufacturer? And then you've got Amazon. What are they? They're a retailer, they're a distributor, they're a shipping company, they're, they're everything, right? And so well, when does the consumer want that experience versus the one the rest of us all have? How does a manufacturer decide 
how to allocate their time and energy across all those channels. So it's so much more complicated today than it used to be. And I think I, I see more businesses get into trouble trying to navigate all that than I do them producing new product or trying to, to understand the consumer. It's very easy to get trapped in the forest of how to go to market right now. And all of that's really happened in the, like, in the last 15 years. So think about that, that our industry and probably most others didn't really change that much from call it the 50s up until the mid 90s. Right. Right. Just new products, sexier stuff. But in terms of the distribution situation, really wasn't that different. So huge change. And then on top of that, you've got everybody trying to come out with their own, what you call white label products, right? Your own brands. Because everybody's saying, well, maybe this scary forest of distribution isn't going to work and I need to be completely vertically integrated. And so you see a lot of folks doing that. And the truth is that there's a balance in all of that that you have to find a way to strike. But sometimes you, you fall on your face as you're going through there and you might have a, a bloody nose maybe a couple bloody noses before you get that balance right. And then maybe the market changes again. So one of the things that I remember surprised me in the early days of my career, so we're talking like 25-ish years ago, right kind of as this stuff was happening, maybe right before it started to shift, is I remember going to a couple of larger speed parts manufacturing companies. And we're talking like the big ones, right? And I remember walking into some of these kind of famous brands and realizing they had basically no sales team. Like they would have like tech support so that if some shop owner had some issue with a speed part and couldn't figure out why it wasn't working, like you could talk to some old guy who probably at one <laughs> point like designed it or something and they're going to like give you really good technical advice. But there wasn't like a pool of people in cubicles doing sales because they weren't a sales organization. And that was an interesting moment for me to realize that because I think because of that model and the WDs sort of had their own sort of version of a sales team, those wholesalers you were talking about. But a lot of times it was regional. And back those days, I think a lot of the WDs had like territories, like there were a few national ones, but there were a lot of like regional ones where you know, we just do the Southeast or the Northwest or whatever. And obviously that's all kind of changing too. So now if you're an organization like, like yours, you have to have, obviously, I assume a pretty robust infrastructure for IT because you're running an e-com business and you probably have to have a room full of people actually on the phone taking orders and helping customers. And you also have to have like shipping, receiving figured out and product designers that are coming up with product. And I mean, that's a lot of headcount. That's a lot of people. When you look at all that, how do you map all that? And then you're also having to kind of interact with these frenemies, right? So, you know, and, and these are people that are your customers and they're also your vendors and they're also your competitors. As you're forecasting and you build your business and you continue to kind of march forward into this crazy new world, how do you figure all that out? How do you kind of build a blueprint for that? Well, I think some of it's trial and error. And that's you know, not the answer anyone wants to hear, right? It would be much more satisfying if there was a series of steps you go through and you know you use this matrix and you'll make the right decisions. And there is some truth to that. But some of it's trial and error is, okay, let's see if this works. And can we test that in a way that if it goes sideways, it isn't going to really hurt us, right? Those calculated risks. And let's try bringing on a person that can do this one, not, not seven, not, not 50, and give them a little bit of leash and see what they can do. Let's try getting into this new platform uh, in a small way. And, you know, I, I think you mentioned technology. And, and I think one of the interesting things about technology is, you know, you, you go and you look at it and the salesperson tries to sell you on this. And usually whatever they're trying to sell you, if you buy it that way, you're going to fail. So you have to negotiate everything and say, look, I want to try this. I don't want to go dive right in the deep end and find ways to try little things. And I think communication is key too. I think knowing 
what your frenemies are doing and where they want to go. It's a big chessboard. And the more you know, the better decision you're going to make. And I think you have to be ready to make some mistakes. If your plan is that you're going to make seven moves and all seven moves are going to work and you've you figured the finances of all that out and it, you know, it's, it's down to the dollar. This is the way it's got to be. I guess that works sometimes. But I think it doesn't work far more often than it does. So I think if you're going to make seven chess moves, you have to assume two of them are going to be total failures. Can you weather that, right? And so the bigger you get, the easier it is to do that. And that's the challenge of when you're small is you're going to have to make some some good guesses. You can do all this and then the, the whole game changes. So taking calculated risk I think is a big part of that. You just can't have too much information. Dan, you know all about the SEMA show and the SEMA board. You brought me into that in terms of being on the board. And I think that for me as a retailer, if that's what you want to call me today, one of my biggest goals when I go to the SEMA show is to understand what everybody is doing. And that's a great opportunity to see them, to talk to them, to see their products, to see their team, who they bring, you know, have conversations about what's important to them and understand where they're coming from. So I can determine what moves I need to make to either increase my partnership with them or try to step out in front of them or walk totally away from them. You know, that's very different than what we used to try to do at the SEMA show. Interesting. So it's, it's more about the people and the connection and sort of figuring out the next step of that relationship. Absolutely. I mean, SEMA show used to be where we went to decide what new products we were going to put in the catalog for the next year. We would come home in November and we would have bags full of brochures and there were no you know, cell phone pictures back then. So we'd have these meetings and go through everything and how quickly could we get all that stuff in our in our catalog for the first quarter. And we barely do that at all now. All of those decisions are made you know, continuously throughout the year. I was going to ask, I assume that's happening in real time, right? I don't know a lot of companies on the manufacturing side that are waiting all year to release a new product at this point. Like when they have one ready, they just release it. And I assume they're contacting your buyers and you're having that conversation. Absolutely. You know, that's happening. And, and I think we see more at the SEMA show of products that are 3D printed and won't be available for 18 months. And I think you see more of that in part because of how easy it is to make prototypes today. And in part because the SEMA shows now become a, a media show as much as it is anything else. And so you can get a lot of splash if you can get your product up there and get seen. But 10, 15 years ago, you, you didn't do that. Because all that did was upset everybody. They came to be able to buy the product they could see, and if they couldn't buy it. And it gave your competitors an opportunity to knock it off, right? Yeah. So that, that just wasn't a thing. And now that's a huge part of what we see. I mean, you walk through a lot of these big booths, and there could be 10 cool new products there, but you can't buy any of them for a long time, maybe. Or we get a lot of, hey, we're, we're thinking about doing this. What do you think? All, all this change has really impacted that. So let's shift gears a little bit. I want to talk about the retail space because I, I think, you know, one could argue that, you know, first it was Walmart and, and now it's sort of Amazon, but there's been this kind of a race to the bottom in terms of like commodity products where if you buy, you know, like I'll give a weird example, like paper towels, like my family goes through paper towels at whatever rate it goes through. Right. And, you know, we have three kids and, you know, I don't really care where we buy our paper towels, right? I just want them cheap and I want them when I need them. And so we yeah. have a thing on Amazon where they just show up on the you know front porch every two weeks and fine, like, great. It's one less thing I have to think about. Yeah. So to me, there's like no authenticity. I'm not super concerned about where they're coming from. I don't really care. As long as it like works and it's convenient and it's a competitive price, like good. That's one less thing I have to worry about in my life. But at least for me personally, like when it comes to bigger purchases or purchases I'm more personally interested in, whether it's, you know, trucks and Jeeps or outdoor gear or whatever, like I, I want to be told a story. I want to feel like it's authentic. I want to know that it's a good product. I, I also, a lot of times I have questions. I'm by nature sort of a researcher 
sure that's not probably stuff I'm going to buy on Amazon because you don't really ever totally know what you're going to get. And so for me, I want to read about it. I want to learn about it. I want to see what other competitive products are out there. So I wonder how much of that plays into the evolution of Quadratech of that sort of, you have a relatively narrow focus for a big company. You, you focus on not just cars or the aftermarket, but a really specific segment of it. You know, you're not selling a lot of Mustang parts at Quadratech. Right. Is that, I guess, accurate for your business? And it is, how does that sort of mission drive what you guys do? It's absolutely a thing. And it, it has, you know, changed the business in terms of how it's changed the business. It's probably pushed us more into premium than, than really low end stuff, right? We believe and it's it's just through our experience and our and our own actions we take on on the marketplaces that that is much more low end in terms of Jeep parts and accessories, right? It tends to be a, a younger customer. They're less quality sensitive, but they're extremely price sensitive. That's meant that it's probably pulled some of that out of our own business or our, our direct-to-consumer business. But the direct-to-consumer business has gone maybe more upscale, more premium. Right. There's definitely more premium options out there than there were before. It's bifurcated it a little bit. And I don't know if that's good or bad. It's hard to tell. I think that it's good as long as you're able to get your revenue from both sides of that apple. But if you are overly focused on one, you might be struggling right now to get that other piece because it's it's two totally different ways you sell. Now, Luckily, the world that you and I are in is not the paper towel world. So even if we're talking about a light, a cheap light that is fairly generic, and maybe that's something that gets sold on Amazon, there's still a level of, of engagement, knowledge, and, and understanding that the consumer wants that you can win by doing a better job with that than somebody else. And that would be like product copy, photography, reviews. Sure. There's, there's all sorts of different ways of tackling that, right? Whether they're art copy everything you're talking about or how you manage the monster that is uh, listings on Amazon. So there's lots of different ways to attack, whether it's Amazon, Walmart, eBay, whatever. And I think the companies that can figure out how to do all of that are going to be most successful. But I would say right now in this post-COVID world, we're going through another change as far as the marketplaces go. And I'm, I'm seeing a lot of folks on the manufacturing side pull back from Amazon. And why, I, I couldn't totally tell you, but I, I think that in the last, call it 18 months, as companies were over inventoried and trying to get their feet back underneath them with that and really looking at every cost. Amazon's gotten to be a pretty expensive place to do business. And I think a lot of folks weren't making the money there. They thought they were. And so now everyone's reevaluating that. I'm not sure what that becomes in our industry. I'm not sure if that becomes Amazon reacts to that and finds a way to keep all those folks there or if that swings to companies like Quadratech and we pick that that business up for the manufacturers or if the manufacturers go deeper direct to consumer or if that somehow swings to brick and mortar. I think we're still watching that movie right now. I don't know how it's going to play out, but I saw this like march towards Amazon over the last call it eight years. And boy, I've seen that reverse in the last six months in a, in a huge way. I remember probably like 08, 09 was around the first time that I had heard that Amazon had buyers walking the SEMA show and the industry was excited. They were thrilled. They thought it was this great opportunity, right? It's like one of the world's biggest retailers and marketplaces coming to our industry. And if memory serves, it seemed like a lot of the companies that were the most excited about it were the ones that didn't have the infrastructure to really tackle direct-to-consumer and e-com in, in the proper way. So I think they saw it as an opportunity to, hey, like we can open up a new channel, get new sales without having to go. I mean, I think at the time, 
and again, this is 15 years ago, it was like a hundred plus grand just to build a proper e-com site for a small business. A lot of small businesses couldn't do that. Sure. So I was like, okay, well, well, this is great. And, and, you know, sacrifice some margin, but don't have to deal with the tech. And most people have that app on their phone at that point. So it's a pretty low barrier to entry for a consumer. I feel like the e-com thing has certainly gotten a lot easier for a lot of companies thanks to things like Shopify and, you know, social selling on platforms and Google shopping now is actually pretty good. And so, I mean, there's a lot of ways to do that, but I would think, and I don't know if, if you've seen this with your customers, but it seems like one of the things that's nice about a Quadratech and there are different, there are Quadratechs in lots of industries, right? But, but sure. in, in the Jeep industry and in, in, in off-road, I think it's great that you can go on and you can look at a category and you can say, okay, if I want that light bar, here's all the different light bars that fit my JL. And I can compare them by features and I can compare them by price. And if I really wanted to, I could pick up the phone and I could actually talk to someone or get an open a chat window and someone's going to tell me, here's yeah. why this one is 50% more than this other one. And that authenticity thing, I think, you know, I've gotten to know a lot of your employees over the years. And almost to the last one, they're all hardcore Jeep people, which certainly helps. I would think. Absolutely. Obviously, everybody thinks that the spot they're in, or maybe they don't, but hopefully everybody thinks that the spot they're in is the right spot, right? And I'm sure that if you brought uh, a primary manufacturer onto the show and they were starting to sell direct and they still did some WD stuff and were doing some Amazon stuff, they would probably tell you the five reasons why that's where they want to be and they're in the right spot, right? And everybody down the food chain would probably say the, the same thing. I like the spot that we're in for a lot of reasons. We're not really focused on the ends and the ends probably need to adapt the most, right? If you're a manufacturer all the way down to a, a brick and mortar installer, for you to vertically integrate, you have to stretch pretty far across the whole industry to make that happen. Whereas if you sit in the middle, which is where I am, it's a shorter reach to each end. So we like that. You know, we are an impassioned Jeep company and you don't get that from some other of our competitive platforms out there. And Amazon's certainly an example of that. The other cool thing, other than we offer a great deal of selection for the consumer is I learned this back when I was on my, my barbecue grill business. And that is, we had all the grills, right? We had all the grills and the tools and some of the consumables that went along with that. And if you were into it and you wanted a grill or a special sauce or there was a you know special tool set, we had all of that for you and you didn't have to run around and look for it and whether you were searching the internet or going to stores. We had all that. We could ship it to you very quickly, came to your house. So same thing that we do here at Quadratech and happens in many other industries. One of the challenges in that business was that that was all well and good, but Wayfair or Home Depot knew when you were going to buy a grill, right? So they crunched the big data and they could go, all right, Dan Kahn bought some patio furniture and his wife bought some outdoor tablecloths. And then look, they got some tiki torches. He's about to buy a grill right? They could chase you to sell you that grill. And then they had lots of options, not as many options as me. And so we figured out our ways to battle that. But as you see in our industry, a lot of manufacturers really excited about selling direct because of all the margin that's there for them, especially as they try to step away from Amazon. That's going to be a real challenge for them because they're hoping to, to sell one or two or three items to you. And that's probably it. Whereas a company like Quadratech, well, I'm, I'm hoping to sell you two or three items for the next 10 years. Right. And so I'm going to know what you've got. I've got all the choices and I know about when you're going to make your next move and what that next move is probably going to be. That's a huge advantage for us. And as enthusiasts, we can help consumers make the decisions that they don't necessarily even know they're about to make, but we know they are and can be there for them. So we like that spot and we're very happy to be there. 
And I think what the big thing that you're going to see distribution network wise in our industry is you're going to see people pull away from Amazon right now. That doesn't mean Amazon's going away. It just means you're going to see a little bit of pullback and you're going to see some excitement about going direct as a manufacturer. And then you're going to see the down channels get a little bit of that business. And then, you know, six months from now, I think you're going to get that further down the food chain, Quadratech, WDs and and brick and mortars are going to get a bigger chunk of that business back when these manufacturers are having a tough time moving volume because they just don't have the data. Yeah. And I think was the Henry Ford quote, if I asked my customers what they wanted, they would have said faster horses. Exactly. But again, that's also not going to go away. I think everybody's going to be manufacturers are going to sell direct. I, I can't imagine given how cheap it is to set up a direct-to-consumer experience these days, that any of that is going to go away. So the real answer is you need to find a way to understand what you're good at and do as much of that as you can. And the things you're not good at, decide which of those things do you think really matters given that the product you've got at the price point or the packaging or just the content of the product itself and take a couple of calculated risks within the distribution network and make the right call. Getting this right is the hardest part. It's definitely the hardest part. There's a lot of talk in the automotive aftermarket, but even in like gardening with home improvement, like it's not just automotive aftermarket about sort of consumer preferences shifting. You know, I think for many decades, we were sort of a DIY economy in a DIY country. And there's been talk about things shifting more and more to a do it for me model. Is that something that you've seen on your business and on the, on the Sigma board as well? Great question. It's really hard to know. It's really hard to know. I think there, there's always been a do it for me part of our industry. And I think it's different for, for each of the different sectors with the industry. So as a, as a Jeep guy, I think there's probably a bigger shift to do it for me than in say, hot rod or pony car, just because I think you're seeing a huge growth in the female part of the Jeep market, just in terms of whether they're younger, middle-aged or older women, the Jeeps are cool and they want to be a part of that. And don't get me wrong, some of them are as wrenchy as, as any any guy out there, but, but we see that on the female side, the women's side, that there's more interest in having somebody else just get the Jeep done and enjoying it, which has pushed some of that that way. And then believe it or not, as that's grown, and this is very specific to Jeep and off-road, we've seen a shrinkage in the number of shops out there that can do installs. Interesting. And so that's created a little bit of a thing, right? And I don't know that that I know what the answer to that is in in terms of go-to-market. The only piece of this market that we don't do is the brick and mortar. That's not an area of, of great expertise for me. So how does that problem get solved? I'm not sure. So you're actually, so, and I mean, I've kind of observed that in my own town, but you're seeing it kind of nationally that there is sort of a contraction in the number of shops and that are doing the work and things like that. Absolutely. COVID killed a lot of them, the smaller ones that weren't that healthy. And then we've had a couple of big players in the industry fold yeah. uh, or at least fold big parts of their business. Yeah. Or radically transform their model. Absolutely. Right. When I say fold, I mean, folding their shops closed and all of that is still in play right now. And I think, I don't know where it's going to land, but the market seems like it's growing. I see these market reports about like total market size of the aftermarket. And certainly it seems like Jeep is moving a lot of vehicles and, you know, you look at like the Bronco kind of came out of nowhere. And I know you guys are making a play for that as well. Sure. It's tough to tell where the market is right now. I mean, Jeep sales are down pretty significantly. Maybe that's market demand. Maybe that's geopolitical stuff. There's a lot of factors there, but Jeep's year over year sales are not, not in a good spot. We follow that pretty closely. You know, 
Broncos on the scene now. And that's interesting. It's still really small and it's going to take, you know, years for that market to build up the, the gravitas that, that something like Jeep has or, or some truck brands. That's got a lot of potential for the future to be something. And I don't know what car sales are going to look like next year. There's more things impacting car sales now than there, there have been in a long time. There's a lot of regulation. I don't know if you've followed what's going on with Stellantis right now in terms of just the whole California thing. Yeah, like no straight ICE Jeep sales after a certain year, right? It's going to be either hybrid well, or electric. So there's there's... 17 states, if I've got my numbers right, that follow California's emission regulations. So right now, through an interesting set of circumstances that are sort of secretive, some automakers are being subject to different levels of emissions requirements in California. And Stellantis was left out of that deal, the good deal. They're in the bad deal. And so they're doing things to try to satisfy more stringent requirements that I think five or six automakers don't have to. And so in those 17 states, if there is a electric or hybrid version of that vehicle, Stellantis is not permitting the dealers to stock the ICE version. And Pennsylvania is one of those states. So you cannot go into a Jeep dealership in Pennsylvania and drive away in a gas Wrangler. Can't do it. That's a huge, huge problem for them that they were fairly silent on until last week. They started a PR blitz calling out their competitors. And Ford is one of the ones that is safe in that whole thing. So there, there's a lot of factors going on right now. And that's a much more complicated situation than I pretend to understand. All of that is impacting vehicle sales, which ultimately is impacting the aftermarket. So it's just it's just a lot furrier than it used to be. Yeah, and interest rates have to probably be paying an impact. You know, your monthly rate is, you know, if you're financing over 48 or 60 months, that's significantly higher than it would have been a couple of years ago. Absolutely. I think at least with some of the OEMs that were having, you know, strikes, there was inventory issues. I mean... There was inventory issues in COVID, and then they seem to not have really ever really flattened out. So it's still kind of an issue. And yeah, different kind of inventory issue now. But since 2020, there's been inventory issues. Interesting. So when you're running a business like yours and you see kind of this lumpiness, how do you try to make it as resilient as you can, knowing that there's a lot of things that are like what the feds and the states are doing with an OEM is kind of out of your control. So how do you try and make it as resilient as you can? I think it's just like anything in life. You, you control the things that you can control, right? So the, the things that you can make changes to, you make those changes. And you try to leave a little bit of cushion in the system for the lows and take advantage of the highs when they're there and grab as much of that business as you can. And don't spend too much time obsessing over the things you can't control. Because you could, you could easily wallow in that all you want, but go back to the drawing board, do what you do well, really do that well, make sure you know who you are and your customers know who you are. And if it worked before, a new version of that will work in the context of whatever today's distribution network or, or market is. And, you know, that's a very broad answer to your question, but, but I think it is the truthful one that you don't get to know what the next big change in society is going to be or geopolitical thing or whatever. So don't spend too much time trying to figure it out. Just make sure you're ready for a problem, that your solution to problems is, is wide ranging and flexible. Uh, that makes a lot of sense. On that note, you gave the Wayfair and Home Depot example with the grills. So, you know, if that customer buys that patio furniture, they buy those tiki torches, they're probably going to, and I, I assume you guys can do a level of that where, you know, when someone comes in and they buy that lift kit and they buy a set of wheels, they're probably going to buy a set of tires. But beyond the kind of predictive part, I have to think that a big part of a business like yours that is so consumer facing is also understanding 
and meeting your customers' needs. How do you do that? Like, what is the culture and the process you've built that allows you to sort of, I mean, because you guys do have a really good reputation with your customers, and people really like Quadratech, and I see stickers on the backs of Jeep windows. I don't see a lot of Amazon stickers on the back of, you know, <laughs> pickup trucks yeah. or whatever. So how do you do that, and, and how do you see that sort of either changing or not changing in the future as this thing continues to evolve? I hope it doesn't change. We do it sort of two ways. So one is uh, we bring in folks here that are into the hobby. And a lot of people that work here work here because of that. They love Jeeps or they love race cars or motorcycles or, they're, you know, they're, they're into it. And they either love Jeep itself or become Jeep folks, even though they were Mustang guys or whatever. So we bring in people that, that want to be here and want to talk about this and want to be involved in it because it's just a personal thing for them. So that's the first big piece of that. And then the second is we give everybody the latitude to make decisions that line up with that. So we don't do a ton of market research. We do some. But the best market research I think I can do is I can walk into a call center with however many people are there that day that are into Jeeps and go, do you guys think this is a good idea? Because chances are the people they're talking to on the other line is just like them. That doesn't mean we don't get some things wrong. We certainly do. But we can look around at what we're doing and play the, well, would I like this? game, as opposed to if I was in a business, maybe that I was not connected with the consumer on a personal level. Maybe your paper towel example is great. In my house, I, I don't buy the paper towels. I use them. Right. But in terms of my analysis of what made that a good experience or bad experience, it's practically zero. So if you were to ask me, how do I sell more paper towels? I wouldn't have a, an answer that I had a lot of confidence in, right? But when I walk into the call center and I ask one of my folks or my marketing team or my content team or whatever, even the warehouse, and I go, we're thinking about doing this with our catalog or, or selling this product or coming out with this private label product. What do you think? They're going to have an opinion and they're going to produce it with conviction and confidence. So right away, we have a, a great set of data when we make that decision. And those are the two things that have really been, been since the beginning here. And I, I really don't have any plan to change that. So it's hire people that are your target demo and then trust them enough to listen to them when they share opinions. Yeah, I think that's, you know, I think there's a lot of companies in our industry that do that and some that don't. And that's a more expensive way to do it, maybe. But, you know, it's worked for us and it's worked for my competitors. I mean, the majority of my competitors do the same thing. Right. So that's a fairly effective strategy. And I think that carries all the way through the food chain. I think the manufacturers in our industry tend to have a lot of that all the way to the brick and mortar folks. The hard part is letting those people flex their knowledge. Right. It's hard. That's really good insight. Last question. And this is something I ask every guest on the show. My personal mantra is make every mistake once. I didn't go to business school. I've had to kind of learn everything the hard way, but I found that my most valuable lessons in life have been the ones that I messed something up and then had to kind of reflect on it and go, well, that was not the right way to handle that. And then try and figure out what I did wrong and, and, and learn from it. So yeah. the question I have, and this could be, you know, your whole career, it could be firecraft, it could be DHS, it could be a quadratech. When you think back on your arc and on your career, as well as in volunteer leadership as well, what's the biggest mistake you can think of that you often reference either consciously or unconsciously? And what did you learn from it? Wow, the biggest mistake. Holy cow, Dan. I think the the biggest mistake I've made is success in, in my mind is is about a couple of things. It's about the people you surround yourself with and work with. And it's about the premises of what you're trying to do. So you can have great people, but if you got a bad idea, it doesn't matter. And the opposite is also true. You can have the world's greatest idea, but if you have the wrong people around it, that's 
the tree falling in the woods, right? That, that nobody ever heard. So I've made both of those mistakes. I've surrounded myself with great people, but had a bad idea we were trying to, to chase down and stuck to the idea too long, right? And you take great people and they get frustrated because it's not working and it's not their fault. It's never going to work. It's just a bad idea. And so I think in terms of the mistake there is at some point, you got to let it go. You got to say, you know what? This was a bad idea. And I, I'm going to get out of it before I get too deep into it. I've made that mistake. I think the other one I've made more often and is an easier one to make. And that is you got a good idea, but you don't have the right people around it. They may be the right people for something else. And you like them and you have relationships with them and you have connections with them and you get to the point where you know maybe they're not the right people but it's really hard to make that change and whether that's having to move on from people or you move on yourself that's really 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 hard and i i've watched many people hold on a long long time with that that, that shouldn't and so where is the right ethical time where you go we tried everything we could this just isn't going to work so those are in my mind the two biggest challenges of leadership is balancing those things because this whole, how do you motivate people? You can learn that. That's a skill you, you can sort of develop. You can go to classes that teach it or get coaches that help you with it. You learn to be a little bit more aware of yourself. You can develop that muscle. I'm not sure that's something people are born with. But understanding when it's time to let the idea go or understand that you have the wrong team around a problem, that's a really, really, really hard skill to develop. And I think that probably the only way to develop it is screw it up a couple of times. And so I mean, you just got to be aware of that. I have an HR attorney that has said similar things. So I think that's a, and I haven't learned that lesson yet. It's so. really hard, isn't it, Dan? It's really hard. You love all these people, that, you know, right? I've done it here at Quadratech. I've done it when I owned Firecraft. I did it back when I was with the government. I've seen other people do it, right? And unfortunately, the the team, when you do it, when I'm talking about whether you move on from people or you add new people on top of people or underneath, whatever, however you're changing the people. Or even position them into other, like you said, so yeah. you have the right people in the wrong role. Yeah, it's not about whether you're a good person or a bad person. Right. You just might be in the wrong chair. The teams never initially respond well to any of that. That's not human nature. Human nature is to fight that. And you have to persevere through that. And hopefully you got that right because humans in general react negatively to any kind of change, but especially change that involves the people that are around them. Very well said. That was a really good answer, especially because I kind of sprung the question on you. So thank you. Ted, to close out, what would you say to people who are kind of listening to this? Maybe they're your customer. They know your brand. They follow SEMA and some of the volunteer work you do that say, I really want to, I want to do this for a living. I, I think this is so cool. I want to get into this industry. They're one of those people you're talking about that they love Jeeps or Mustangs or whatever, and, and they want to get an industry. How do they proceed? How do they move forward? I think they have to answer a question first. So the first question is, why do they want to do this? Do they want to do it? Because they want to make a living. And what does that living look like? Is it two people? Is it two people and six children? How big or small of a life do you want? What is your financial expectation? Or is this something you want to do really for fun and maybe make some money doing it at the same time? So that's sort of a continuum, right? You got to make that decision first. And then that sets your expectation. That doesn't mean that you shouldn't change it along the way. But I think if your plan is to be the million dollar man, uh, and that's what you want, whether you admit it or not, and you're, you're doing the hobby business instead, you're just going to be unhappy. You're in, but you're unhappy. 
So I think knowing what you want is key. And then I think once you figured that out, you really need to talk to as many people as you can that do that and hear what they have to say, because they're going to say something different than me, or maybe there's some overlap there. And you, you know, you talk to five people and three things come up and all those conversations. I think that that's probably something you should pay attention to then develop that list of knowledge and then go do it. Don't spend five years toiling around with that. Do a decent amount of networking and research, understand yourself, what you're good at, what you're not good at, what you want out of it. Talk to some people and then take the plunge. And if it's in our industry, there are some behemoth companies out there. Don't get me wrong. There's not very many of them in the automotive aftermarket. We're one of the bigger ones. I know almost everybody here at Quadratech. You know, there's no wall of secretaries to get to me. Right. People come in and talk to me all the time. That is what most of the companies in our industry are. So I think in terms of your ability to get in front of someone like me, it's very, very easy to do if you try. Look, I get people will reach out to me. I don't know where they get. They get my email address or they find me on LinkedIn and they have a problem with an order. Like I get those and I feel those myself and deal with it. If you reach out to me, for example, and you say, hey, well, I really want to get into this or that. How do I do it? I'm probably going to answer you, right? right? So- and I, I would tell you that that's true for most of the guys like me in this industry. That is literally how I started. I started writing letters. Yeah. And a couple of people wrote back. And that was a long time ago. So, yeah, great point. And that is cool. The accessibility part. You know, I think if this was the movie industry or the fashion industry and you wrote a letter to Anna Wintour, she's probably not going to write back. So Exactly. And I also don't think there's that many industries out there where you can make a little money and have a lot of fun and be, that's like the perfect situation for you, right? And that's sort of as far as you want to take it. Maybe you're financially sound for some other reason or or you live in an area where you can just, cost of living is low and you, and you move there on purpose so you can do that. Our industry is full of those businesses and those people are great and they have amazing lives and they're, they're super satisfied. Awesome opportunity. And then the flip side is true. You don't want to go for the other one if you're interested in the one. Right. Well said. Ted, how can people find more about you and your company online? I mean, obviously our website is a huge place for you to go, quadratech.com. We have all the social media outlets, just like everybody else these days, Facebook, Instagram. Our YouTube page is a big part of what we do, and you can access all of that from our website. There's a little bit on there on the About Us section of our website about our, our leadership team and some of their backgrounds. That's a great opportunity if somebody wants to build a career to go look at that and look at some of the profiles of the people that are, are leading these organizations and say, well... If that's what I want to do one day, let me start building that resume today. And then, you know, in terms of me personally, I'm always available and I'm very involved in SEMA. And I'm sure a lot of the people that listen to this show are, are SEMA folks. And, and hopefully I can see you or bump into you in some way through that great organization. Very good. I appreciate it. So everyone, thank you very much for listening. And, and special thanks to Ted Wentz from Quadratech for joining us. That's it for this episode of Only the Strong Survive, powered by Con Media. Thank you and have a great day.